So this week we're starting our, uh, our series on Moses, and uh, somebody was talking about why Moses. Uh, you know, Moses is the, uh, the key pivotal figure of the Old Testament in the way that Christ is the key pivotal figure of the New Testament. Uh, he's the giver of the law. Uh, he, he's kind of the person where, where the people of Israel go from being the Hebrews to being uh, those of the Jewish faith. I mean, it's kind of that crux, and there's a, a tremendous parallel that's drawn all the time between Moses and Christ, especially if you read Matthew's Gospel. And this parallel of, you know, Moses who leads the people out of uh, their, their slavery and bondage in Egypt to freedom and Christ who leads us out of our, our slavery and bondage to sin and into life. And so there's this kind of parallel that runs through these stories. And uh, so I'm, we're going to be spending some time with this story and uh, finding the things that it speaks to us in this day and age as we move through the next several weeks in the season of Lent. Um, you know, the, the, the first thing, you know, we always got to remember about Moses is this is a very, very old, old story. And uh, so, you know, when you get back into those old stories, you know, sometimes the details and things you have to really um, kind of dig for and look for and try to find. And, and there's a lot of things we don't really know uh, about Moses' early years. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation about what that might have been like early on. Y'all get it, Right. Okay, I'm just checking. I, I, I never know. You know, the, the A15 crowd kind of looked at that and said, huh? So, right, go get some more coffee, folks. Uh, but we're going to play, some, uh, play with uh, Moses a little bit over the next several weeks and, uh, and draw some of the lessons uh, out of his life that, that cross over from, from the, the origins of Judaism into our faith and into our lives. Uh, let's pray. Father, we ask you to come on this morning and uh, lead us out of uh, the bondage in our own lives uh, into the freedom that you offer us. Uh, let the words of, your ma- of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to set the story. Uh, a lot of what I'm doing today is kind of setting the story in place for you. Um, remember that... Uh, in the Old Testament, there's the story where, where the Israelites, the, the Hebrew people, come to Egypt. There's a, there's a famine in the land. And, and even to this day, uh, when you see large migrations of people, uh, a lot of times it is driven by famine. That's one of the key things that drives that, famine and violence. Uh, so there's a famine in the land. And, and uh, Joseph has uh, previously uh, fallen on hard times. Y'all remember the story where his brothers get mad at him. They sell him into slavery. He's taken into Egypt and sold into slavery there, uh, rises there through a series of events to be the steward of Pharaoh, uh, you know, uh, like second in command in Egypt. And, and he's there when the brothers come, when Jacob sends his brothers over to check out and see if there might be a possibility for them to come there and find food and shelter. Uh, so they come, and, and of course, there's a, a whole story there of Joseph receiving his family and the forgiveness and grace that flows out of that story. But that's how the Israelites end up coming over to, to Egypt to escape the famine, and they become established there. Uh, Egypt is a, a very uh, kind of a long, narrow corridor in terms of the actual population. Uh, here, it's, I know this map's hard to read, so it's okay. Uh, this is Upper Egypt, and here's Lower Egypt, defined not by north and south, but by the upper reaches of the Nile River and the lower reaches of the Nile River, because the Nile defines Egypt. Uh, when you get off of this little ribbon here of the Nile River, either over here into the eastern desert or the western desert, uh, you quickly are in a place which is very inhospitable. And for those of you that are, you know, just kind of help you understand the size of the desert out there, when we flew from Amsterdam to Nairobi, uh, 
in, in a jet, I think they're traveling like at 600 miles an hour or something like that. Uh, it took us three hours to cross the Sahara. Now, I want you to think about it. It took us three hours to cross. As far as you could see in either direction, there's nothing but desert. Uh, it's a huge expanse. And, and so here uh, in the midst of uh, this huge expanse of nothing uh, comes this river. And the river is the lifeblood of, of, of Egypt. It carries uh, water down. Uh, the, the soil it washes down along the banks is fertile. That's where crops are grown. So everything happens you know, within a, a fairly close distance of this river as it runs here until you get down here to the coast and here it breaks into a, a river delta which actually is quite lush uh, green very much agricultural uh, this is where most of the jewish people most of the hebrew people settled it's called the land of goshen and if you ever hear that phrase in an old uh, out of an old gospel hymn or something that's what it's a reference to uh, this place where things would grow is green and lush uh, and so that's where a lot of the people are settled uh, Moses probably was born in this area. This is Thebes. It's the capital uh, during this day and age, uh, during Moses' period of time. Uh, it's what is now Luxor, uh, if you've heard that name. And over here is the Valley of the Kings, uh, where all the, the great temples and burial palaces and, and caves and so forth are for the, for the ancient pharaohs of Egypt. It just, just kind of as a side point, up here are the Pyramids of Giza. Uh, the pyramids at the time of Moses, the pyramids of Giza are already a thousand, over a thousand years old. You understand? They're they're a whole different time frame. So, the, the Israelites were not building the pyramids. That's not what they were doing. Okay, they'd already been there a thousand years, so that's not what they're involved in. Uh, they're much older than that. And up in this area is a town called Pi Ramses, which uh, actually was uh, Ramses, uh, one of his residences, and and uh, probably where a lot of the Israelites were working. So it's, it's this area where they're, going to be, uh, where they're going to be living in Egypt. And over here is the wilderness of Sinai. And down in here is Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai. So uh, we'll kind of be tracing this uh, through the weeks as we go along. But just to help you know that this is probably the area where Moses is born in that time. Now, one of the challenges with all of this is re remembering uh, who these people are. Now, the name Hebrew uh, comes... Uh, from two sources probably. One is uh, from Eber, who was one of the great-grandsons of Noah, and, um, or great-great-grandsons of Noah, and uh, from which the tribe came. But it also is another word meaning from another land, uh, because the Hebrews were always from another land. They were, they were wanderers, they were travelers, they were nomads. Uh, probably the closest modern parallel is the Bedouin. So if you've seen photos of Bedouin tribes with the black tents and the sheep and so forth. That's very much who the Hebrews were uh, up to this period of time. When they settled in Egypt was probably the first time they'd ever been settled in one location for very long. Uh, and because of that, there's some unique challenges that come with that. Uh, if you're reading Adam's book, Adam Hamilton's book about Moses, he's going to go into some of this. But, uh, you know, whereas the Egyptians built places and had great temples and so forth and, and left all kinds of records carved in rocks, and the Sumerians did so, and the Assyrians did so, and the Babylonians did so, the Hebrews did not because they had no set location. Uh, so they did not leave behind these kind of easy-to-follow trails that some of the other cultures did. Um, they were traveling, they were moving, you know, they weren't going to carve anything on large chunks of rock, right? Because, you know, you can't take it with you. Uh, and so, uh, you know, everything is very different in this. And, and that sometimes uh, becomes an interesting item of speculation about uh, all of their culture and, and, you know, why don't we find this and why don't we find that? And the truth is you would not expect to find that because that's not who they were. 
And they were traveling and, and moving all the time. Uh, in the same way, uh, most of the, uh, the records out of this period of time actually are not going to be written down, you know, for another thousand years or so. Uh, because, one, you know, you can't take the stone plates with you and stuff very easily, you know, for large amounts of history. Uh, and it's going to be a long time before they're going to develop, uh, uh, the Hebrew people are going to begin to develop and write on scrolls. So a lot of this material is stuff that is passed by word of mouth uh, for generations before it gets committed onto uh, a scroll. That, in our culture, a lot of times we hear that. We, we think about the telephone game. Do y'all remember the telephone game? You sit in a circle, and the first person whispers something in the next person's ear, and they whisper it in the next ear, and they whisper it in the next ear, and it goes around the circle, and it comes back, and when it gets back around to where it started, it's something entirely different, right? You've played that? Some of you have done Okay, so here's what you need to hear. Forget that game. That doesn't work in this setting. Uh, this is a pre-literary culture, uh, pre-literary cultures, uh, whereas we in literary cultures, we're, we're 90 to 95% visual learners. They're 90 to 95% auditory learners. So they hear and remember what they're told, and they have people in their culture who are established to be the carriers of these stories. That's their job, is to memorize these stories and pass them down. And when sociologists have studied these kind of cultures, what they find is they transmit their stories verbally every bit as accurately as we do in writing. So these stories, although they don't get written down for, a, for quite a bit longer, don't assume that means they're not accurate. I mean, that would, be, that would be a cultural conceit on our part to make that jump. So these are old stories, uh, and they're coming across, and although uh, sometimes the hard evidence of archaeology is not there, um, that does not mean that they are any less accurate um, than any of our other stuff that we have, any of our other histories and so forth. So having said all that, here they are, they're, they're in Egypt, they've come across to escape the famine, uh, they've been in, in the land of Egypt, and they've begun to, uh, to grow as they settle into that place, uh, and the, the Israelite people. Uh, then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and that whole generation, so that whole group has passed away, uh, but the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, so that the land was filled with them. Uh, not really. They're talking about the land of Goshen. Was, there's a lot of Israelites there, but not, not all of Egypt. They're primarily talking about that, that river delta kind of area. And a new king arises over Egypt. And Egypt is ruled by families. Uh, it's passed down through families. At a certain point in time, a family from outside Egypt becomes established. They're the Hyksos family. Uh, Hyksos literally means foreigner or, or you know, immigrant. Uh, and they come in and establish there. They rise to become pharaohs uh, of Egypt. And then eventually they are displaced again by the Ptolemies. Uh, and they become the ruling kind of clan of Egypt for quite a while. And so you have these kind of movements uh, in Egypt that's very similar to what you see in Western European culture and history. Uh, where, you know, one family displaces another and so forth and so on. And all that's going on. So, you know, the, the one king, <laughs> the one that's there is Joseph, dies. But, but when the new king arises, he's not, it's not just that he's replacing the old king. He's of a different lineage. And so he no longer not only doesn't know Joseph, he doesn't know anything about all this, this Israelite stuff. He doesn't get that. That's all foreign to him. They're different people. And, and in, in the time when Moses' story is set, uh, probably uh, the, the Pharaoh that was probably there was Ramses too. And you can see the time frame there who came in. Uh, not only is he named, uh, but also we know that 
Uh, he was uh, probably the most prolific of the pharaohs in terms of building projects. Uh, he built more temples and, and royal buildings and residences and all that than pretty much most of the rest of them put together. So he's a, he's a, huge, uh, he's a, a huge builder throughout the, the Egyptian uh, region of different kinds of projects. So, so in this, this setting where you know, the king no longer knows the Israelites and where Ramses is in the middle of these huge building projects, um, the king says to the Hebrew midwives, remember the king that doesn't know them, says to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a boy, kill him, but if it's a girl, she shall live. <clears throat> and what you hear in that is fear. Because if enough boys are born in there, they can raise an army, and maybe like the Hyksos did before, they can displace us. So we want to control that population. We want to make sure that doesn't happen. And so he issues that ruling out. Fear <laughs> plays a big part in, in this story. Uh, fear. I mean, he's afraid of these Israelites. Probably in all reality, he had nothing to be afraid of. They, they, you know, they, no, there's no signs of aggression or anything. But, but nonetheless, he does that. And, and what I want you to hear is that kind of fear, first, first off, is kind of built into us. Uh, we have a genetic programming to be afraid of those who are different from us. Uh, and there's probably a genetic source for that way back when. But you also need to hear that that kind of fear is one of the most destructive things we have in our history. And it's nothing new. It goes back thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. The fear of those who are different from me, whether they're, they're ethnically different from me, whether they're a different social structure than me, whether they're culturally different than me, whether they speak a different language than me, uh, whatever it is, I... I that's, that's part of our DNA. It's built into us, but it's also one of the things that can be tremendously destructive in our cultures. One of the oldest uh, techniques, if you will, uh, that a ruler who is struggling with his people can use is to identify the foreign threat. Those people. So when things are rough in your country and things aren't going well, you decide it's those people that are the problem, and then all your people come together and unite against the foreign threat instead of turning against you. And if you will go back and read your history, you'll see that repeated in every world war. You'll see it repeated over and over and over and over. It, it, it's one of the great tricks of history that our leaders have played on us. We need to be afraid of them. Not of our leaders. We need to be afraid of them. So Ramses, who's doing this huge expansion of building, is uh, asking all of the people of Egypt to sacrifice for his building projects. You know, their resources, their stone, their, their labor, their money, their food is all going to feed these huge building projects. And they're all sacrificing for it. And they're getting unhappy about that. And they're grumbling about that. And they're complaining about that. And he has this brilliant idea. I'll make the Hebrews the bad guys. And so instead of being you know, worried about me or coming at me, everybody will be afraid of them. It's an old, old, old trick. And, and it's destructive. I mean, fear is a very powerful motivator, but it's a very destructive motivator. And you hear... <laughs> You hear how destructive, oh, well, well, go kill all the boys. I mean, uh, if, I know we read the story and we're familiar with it, but I want you to just kind of wrap your head around that for a minute and think about the horror of that, the inhumanity of that. 
to just give that kind of a blanket order. Sounds a lot like the Holocaust, doesn't it? But this is what we wrestle with. And this is the reality of who we are and that we deal with, is that we are so afraid of the other that we will do horrific things. See, when, when you're afraid, the front part of your brain, the thinking part, shuts down. So you just react. And so we will make decisions. We will make them with strength. We will make them with force. But they will be bad decisions. And I don't know about you, but right now in our culture, it seems like we are living in an age of fear. I mean, everybody uses that, right? Be afraid of what they're going to do. Be afraid of what they're going to do. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. I don't care if you're liberal or you're conservative. I don't care where you are. I mean, in all of those discussions, what I hear people doing is saying, be afraid. Be afraid. Whereas what we need to be doing is, is looking at things and, and engaging the better parts of ourselves to deal with the issues in front of us. Instead, we revert back into fear and then we begin to have knee-jerk reactions and bad decisions. This is who we are. But this is also who we have been for millennia. And it doesn't mean we have to live that way. So, so Pharaoh issues this edict. And in the midst of that, there are two midwives that stand up to him. The midwives feared God. Midwives feared God. Because you know what they understood? Pharaoh's going to die one day. God's still going to be God. Egypt's going to fall one day. God is still going to be God. And ultimately, ultimately at the end of time and in the span of eternity, we're going to be with God. So who is it we're going to listen to? You, you, you know, we, we elect our, our government for certain periods of time, and then they turn over and they go away. But God is still God. And we in the United States like to think we're wonderful and we're amazing and we're the greatest nation in the world. But one day, this will all be dust. But God will still be God. And several decades from now, you and I will all be gone. But God will still be God. So who is it that we listen to? Who is it we listen to? The midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? And I love this. The midwives said to the Pharaoh, Oh, well, you know, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. That sounds good, doesn't it? What's he going to say to that? He doesn't know. I mean, I love it. These women are smart. And, and so having said that, uh, we understand that some of the Hebrew women gave birth to boys that survived. And among those women is Moses' parents, a mother, Moses' mother and his father. A man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. Uh, remember that Levi is going to become the priestly caste. This tribe is going to become the priestly caste of Israel. Uh, a Levite went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. Uh, fine mean healthy, strong, whole. Not, you know, we say fine with kind of as a compliment, you know, oh, you look fine today. 
you know, I mean, as, as it like, you know, you look good and all that. That's not what it means. I mean, it means he's strong, he's healthy, he's whole. She recognizes that, and so she hides him for three months. And then when she can hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, you know, in all these things you've grown up and seen with Moses, right? You see mom goes down and, and she floats the basket out in the river and it drifts downstream, right? That's the, you know, all the movies and everything you've seen that. That's not what happened. First off, if you've seen the Nile, you know that, you know, in parts of the Nile, you know, the current is less than wonderful. But all along the banks where these reeds grow, I mean, the water's not moving. See, mom is really smart. Mom takes him down to a place where she knows Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe, and she places him among the reeds. He's not drifting. She's putting him right where she wants him to be so that Pharaoh's daughter will find him, and she has his sister stand there to keep an eye on things to make sure it goes right. Are you understanding how she is engineering this? And when Pharaoh's daughter comes and finds the baby in her place where she bathes, where the mother has left him, she takes him out of the water. And she recognizes that he's still nursing. And so she looks around and sees this Hebrew girl standing there and says, I'm going to need a wet nurse for this baby. And the Hebrew girl, Moses' sister, says, "Ah, I know someone. (laughs) And she goes and gets Moses' mother and brings Moses' mother to Pharaoh's daughter. So Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Do you hear? She gave him back to his own mother, who went home and got paid (laughs) to raise him. I'm telling you, I think Moses' mother is really smart. I like this woman. This is a sharp woman. I mean, she's really got it on. I mean, she's, she's figured this out. And so she raises him. We don't know exactly what age it was when, when he goes back to Pharaoh's household, but we know that he lived in his own household with his own parents for a number of, time, for a number of years. So I want you to hear the first part is Moses always knew who he really was. He knew he was a Hebrew. And I suspect he actually had a name in Hebrew before he was called Moses. When he goes to Pharaoh's household, he knows that he's Hebrew. He knows who he is. He knows who his family is. And then he goes to Pharaoh's household, and and, and Pharaoh's daughter calls him Moses because I drew him out of the water. The name literally means uh, to pull out of or draw out of or out of or from. I took him out of the river. Now, Now, I want you to contrast that a little. Ramses actually is Ra Moses. Ra is the sun god of Egypt, the chief of the pantheon of Egyptian gods. And so Ramses is drawn out of or the child of the Egyptian sun god. That's what the name means. And contrast that, which is Moses, which he's, he's from somewhere. You know, it's kind of like if you go to the pound and you, you know, get like a stray dog and you bring it home. And instead of naming it, you know, Spot or Buddy or whatever, you just call it Dog. That's, that's what, he's just, well, we got him from the river. We don't know where, he, that's what Pharaoh's daughter does. Hamilton in the story in his book on Moses makes kind of a big deal out of this and says, well, you know, Moses was probably bullied and teased by the other children when he was growing up. I think he's dead wrong about that because frankly, you don't bully and tease a child of Pharaoh's household unless you really want to die. 
So, so I don't think he was bullied or teased uh, by the other children because he was a prince. <laughs> I, but, but I do think he was always raised with an awareness that he was not really of the household of Pharaoh. And I'm sure the other children in the household made it very clear to him that he was second tier, that he's down here. And he grew up with that awareness that he wasn't quite as good as the other ones. Uh, I wonder if you've ever kind of had that feeling that somehow you're, you know, you're kind of second tier, that you're not as good as other folks. Now, I'm not just talking about sibling rivalry, although I know, I know a lot of us have those issues too, but I'm talking about on a more serious kind of level where you feel like, you know, I, I just don't get the same treatment that other people do. And Moses grew up with that and understood that. And if, and if you missed it or didn't get it, you know, his name reinforced it every time someone spoke to him. He's, uh, he's from somewhere. He grew up with that sense. And that's going to be important later on. Now, I want to take this story in a little different direction for a minute. <clears throat> because as we think about this, I want, I want to pull you across to the New Testament for a minute. Because Moses is down in Egypt. He's born in Egypt. He's put in the river. He comes in. He's raised in Pharaoh's household. Uh, and, and, and so it's going to be, he's going to bring the people out of Egypt. In the Christian story in Matthew's gospel, uh, there's a story where the wise men come to visit Jesus when he's young, and then uh, having been warned uh, not to go back to Herod, who's you know, kind of devious, uh, they go a different way. And, and as they are leaving, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt. Do you hear the connections? So, so Jesus, as an infant, is going down to Egypt and later will come back. I mean, all through Matthew's Gospels, he's wanting you to hear the, the parallels and the connections between the life of Moses and the life of Christ. He's wanting you to hear that. That in the same way Moses is going to be the one that brings his people to freedom, Christ is going to be the one that leads his people to freedom. And, and, and they even have this common bond of being in Egypt uh, that reflects uh, the prophet Hosea, right? When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. There's this connection. Uh, when we were in Portland for General Conference, uh, we went to uh, Sunday morning worship with the Africa Initiative, the other uh, people, that delegates that were there from Africa. So there's about 1,500 of us all in this room. And if you've never been to one of those services, there are about two and a half, three hours, something like that, Cindy. Uh, and, and just, you know, it's a tremendously joyful, vivacious experience to be in the midst of that. Uh, but one of the parts of the sermon was a reference back to this part of the story. And, and the call and response that was done there was, the child went down to Africa. In a day and an age when the Christian church in America is shrinking 15 to 20 percent, the Christian church in Africa is growing 15 to 20 percent. The bishops and the delegates from Africa said, you know what? We now are claiming our place as the keepers of the faith. Those of you who know history will know during the Dark Ages that the faith went across to Ireland and was, was uh, held in Ireland and kept in Ireland, sustained in Ireland, and then from Ireland missionaries were sent back to Europe at a later date. They're seeing themselves as a parallel in that, that they are now the kind of the ark, if you will, to carry Christianity. But they go back to these stories and they say, you know, God brought his people Israel out of Egypt. Uh, the Christ child went down to Africa for safekeeping until it was time for him to come back. 
And so that's our story. <laughs> the faith has been entrusted to us until it can come back and be re-evangelized across the world. You know, uh, you may not be aware of it, but the whole axis of Christianity is shifting. Um, and, and they are claiming that, our brothers and sisters in Africa. And if you ever worship with them, this is what I need you to hear. If you ever worship with them, you'll be glad <laughs> that they're claiming it. This is a story about being afraid, being afraid of, of what can happen, being afraid of the others, and in the midst of that, having courage. <laughs> because it's in the midst of this place of fear and, and this place of oppression that Moses gets dropped. And Adam's title for the book is The Reluctant Prophet, because he's going to struggle with this. It's not that fear leaves him, but it's that even in the midst of fear, he's going to live from confidence in God. And I'm going to invite you to begin as we move into Lent to think about the places in your life where fear is holding you and where fear is oppressing you and where you're allowing it to cause you to oppress others and, and to invite God to speak into your life. And instead of living in fear, to begin living in confidence. Let's pray. Mighty Father, we give you thanks for your strength. We give you thanks for the boldness of your proclamation. We give you thanks that uh, in those times when we are oppressed and when we are hurting and when we are uh, in pain, that, that you hear us when we cry out to you and that you answer us, that you do not stand off and you are not distant, but rather you are immersed into our history and into our lives. And so we ask you to open us up to see all of the places where we have allowed fear to hold us in bondage, where it's kept us from, from speaking, where it's kept us from living, uh, where it's allowed us to see the other as some kind of threat instead of as your child. And we ask that you so fill us with your goodness and your mercy and your love that we can replace our fear with a confidence in you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.